This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. Hello, my name is Sophie Rothwell and I'm an associate in the employment team at Charles Russell Speechley's. And I'm here today with my colleague, Nick Hawkins, a senior associate in the team, um, to discuss sexual harassment in the workplace. And we wanted to speak about this topic because there's been a noticeable increase in um, press coverage of sexual harassment claims in the workplace recently. And to name just a few, um, there's been a Swiss Ray case where an underwriter was found to have suffered sexual harassment in the form of offensive sexual comments made to her by senior personnel, both in the workplace and also at after work drinks. Um, there's also been the um, allegations recently revealed at the CBI, uh, including sexual misconduct claims against employees, um, including an allegation of rape at a summer boat party. Um, there's also been a Tesco chairman who's been accused of acting inappropriately and unprofessionally um, with regard to four female employees. Um, there's also been reports of rape and sexual assaults um, within Rio Tinto following an eight month review of its workplace culture. And also very recently um, across the pond, of, of course, the finding against Donald Trump of sexual abuse of a journalist, which very alarmingly, she says, caused her to be fired by her employer, um, Elle magazine, after she spoke up as a result of her reputation being dragged through the mud um, in that um, complaint context. Um, so it's clearly a very important topic. Um, and um, we're going to chat a bit about it today. So I thought it would be helpful, Nick. Um, if we just um, if we start by just getting into um, what harassment actually um, is and how the sort of legal definition of it has evolved um, over the years and the legal kind of landscape that we're operating in. Sure. So um, harassment is defined in the Equality Act. It's when um, someone engages, and this is a bit of a mouthful, but in unwanted conduct. Uh, related to one of the protected characteristics. So that would be uh, sex, age, race, uh, religion, belief, sexual orientation, uh, orientation, disability, or gender reassignment. And the conduct has to have the purpose or, importantly, effect of violating the individual's dignity by creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating, or offensive environment. Um, in the context of sexual harassment there's a separate provision which has the uh if you like additional requirement that the unwanted conduct be of a sexual nature um protection against harassment as a freestanding right was actually introduced back in 2005 prior to that the concept of, of harassment uh, sort of had to be contorted into a direct discrimination claim, which wasn't uh, at all straightforward. But uh, under the current provisions, the process is much simpler. There simply needs to be a link between the harassment and the uh, protected characteristic. Um, and just, I think, further to the um, comments you made uh, at the outset, Sophie, about kind of all, all these um, high-profile stories, one, one further point to make is that with um, harassment claims, particularly sexual harassment claims, um, many go unreported. There are very many statistics which say that, uh, I've seen one that says three in four sexual harassment um, complaints don't actually ever get filed um, because usually women, although there can be men as well, uh, often feel 
um, concerned about retaliation in the workplace. Mm -hmm. And if not necessarily retaliation, uh, they feel that it may, uh, if you like, damage their their prospects. So um, whilst we see the sort of top layer of complaints uh, that, that make the, the news stories, there are obviously many, many people who are affected by sexual harassment in the workplace uh, whose stories never really actually uh, get heard or, or get addressed. And that is obviously something I think that needs to be um, addressed. So just to touch on um, one of the elements of the legal definition for sexual harassment and the requirement of the the conduct, what what sort of conduct would amount to sexual harassment in the workplace context? Yeah, so so usually it's quite clear if if um, conduct is of a, a sexual nature. But the um, Equality and Human Rights Commission has produced a, a code of practice that gives both employers and employees guidance on what this means. So some of the examples are things like um, unwanted sexual advances, uh, inappropriate touching, sexual assault, sexual jokes, uh, displaying pornographic um, photos uh, or images, and um, also sending emails that uh, contain sort of material of a sexual nature um i think one of the points to make really is that what, what is key um to remember is that something that someone regards as a joke or inverted commas banter um may not be seen in the same way by the recipient and that is often something that we do come across in practice whereby a um kind of a perpetrator if you like uh will say well i did make that comment but I was joking we were sort of having a perfectly friendly conversation I was just I didn't mean any offense I was joking that that quite often um isn't nearly enough to um uh, deflect if you like the liability so just picking up on again the legal definition um of sexual harassment the way that it's drafted is that it has to have the effect of violating an individual's dignity or creating an offensive environment for them. Is it always the recipient's viewpoint that is taken? And what would happen if, you know, that particular person was sensitive? So the, the tribal tribunal will take into account the perception of the claimant, the other circumstance of the case, and, and uh, essentially whether or not it was reasonable for the conduct to have the effect that is alleged. Um, so the, the test, if, if you like, is essentially both subjective and um, objectives. Uh, tribunal will look at the effect of the conduct on an individual, but it will also ask itself whether it was reasonable for the claimant to claim the conduct had that effect. So uh, in, in circumstances where someone is um, being hypersensitive, that will be taken into account. And if they were being hypersensitive, um, it probably wouldn't amount to... Um, a sexual harassment claim. So an incident of sexual harassment taking place in the workplace is clearly going to have several, you know, negative impacts for all involved, not least the impact on the victim from potential, you know, emotional perspective, but also the employer from a reputational perspective. 
and financial even, given that, you know, damages um, awards can be substantial to award the employee for that um, humiliation and embarrassment they might have suffered as a result. So clearly it would be in the interest of all for sexual harassment as far as possible to be avoided in the workplace. So what steps would you recommend an employer take to minimise those risks of it happening and ensuring um, protection for their employees? Yeah, well, I mean, look, there are several reasons why an employer uh, should take certain steps to protect its employees. Primarily, obviously, clearly a a workplace uh, free of discrimination is going to be a, a better uh, and probably more productive workplace. But there is also the issue that employers may be liable for the acts of its employees in certain circumstances. Um, where an employer has committed an act of discrimination, harassment or um, victimization, the employer will not necessarily be liable if it can demonstrate that it took all reasonable steps to prevent that discrimination. Um, so in order to show what's called a reasonable steps defence, the employer needs not not only to have policies and procedures in place, but it will also need to show that it follows those procedures, uh, that it trains staff on, on these issues, and it takes the, the issue seriously. So essentially, policies alone uh, won't be sufficient. Mm-hmm. And indeed, McDonald's recently you know, made a very public pledge that they would protect their UK staff after the run of um, sexual harassment claims that have taken place there. So, yeah, it definitely seems that policies um, you know, on their own are not sufficient and more has to be done. So what would those reasonable steps look like that an employer can take? There are several things they can do. And, and um, I suppose the what, what I'm going to discuss now is not necessarily exhaustive. Um, but uh, I think first and foremost, ha- having an implementing you know, equal opportunities policies, anti-harassment policies, bullying policies, and, and regularly reviewing them. I think that's quite important. Um, it's all very well having those policies, but of course you need to ensure that your employees are aware of them, where to find them, uh, are trained on them, perhaps even issued with those policies, uh, sort of highlighted um, as soon as they join. Uh, they need to provide adequate training on the policies to um well particularly you know managers supervisors anyone in supervisory capacity uh, may may require additional training so they can recognize and identify issues um something that's very important is um they need to take steps to deal with um complaints effectively but also i think quickly uh, not sweeping them under the carpet which i think historically uh, I think we could say uh, it's probably something that the that, that, that many employers are, are have been guilty of. Just to add to that, um, dealing effectively with those complaints, you know, there's yeah. there's two sides to consider. There's the employee that's brought the complaint and there's the employee that's, you know, uh, the potential wrongdoer. So there's, you know, two very sort of polar opposite sides to consider and, mm-hmm. um, you know, those steps that need to be taken to effectively deal with those complaints has to um cover both both sides yeah and look i so i i think additionally um the 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 landscape with regards to the law on sexual harassment may well uh change or or develop in 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 the coming um years we'll discuss that later but i think communication is going to be even more key I, i touched on 
communicating to your your staff. But I think also um, flagging, uh, perhaps in the communications, consequences um, of you know per perpetrating sexual harassment. Uh, communication might involve things like putting up posters, ensuring um, you know there's adequate communication on, say, shop floors, for example. Uh, communicating via newsletters, perhaps to uh, clients or, or maybe just to the your um, your workforce more generally. But I think that's going to be uh, really key, uh, perhaps potentially in the build up, particularly to um, you know office parties, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. It's almost a bit of a cliche to refer to office parties, but um, as you and I will know uh, in practice, and many of our colleagues will as well uh office parties can be a real issue for this and, and it's very very frequently the claim uh, the case that um issues arise through office parties and so um i think people need to be uh, essentially what we what we need in this space is, is cultural shifts so a continuing cultural shift and really uh, one of the best ways of getting that is by um communicating uh, on this um, I, I suppose just to round round off on 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 these the, the reasonable steps because there are as I said there are a number of things. Um, other things that you might want to think about, uh, you know, being brutally honest with oneself, uh, you know, perhaps giving uh, staff the opportunity to provide uh, anonymized, um, you know, responses to a survey. Um, perhaps looking at, you know, a lessons learned session once complaints have been resolved. Which is what um, Rio Tinto did with that um, eight month long, right. you know, in internal investigation. And as a result, they've, um, they've got uh, recommendations, which they are committed to implementing. So that's a real, um, you know, a, a real lived example of, of that. Yeah. And look, I think, I think that I, I, touched on it right at the beginning so, so many complaints aren't made for what whatever reason um and and i think that employers do uh probably need to go beyond merely looking at the complaints that are brought to their attention to know whether or not there are issues that they need to address um because you know it might be that um not necessarily quite turning a blind eye to it but um they are uh not getting a true sense of whether or not there is an issue. So um, I, I think that uh, considering things like, you know, exit interviews, discussions about um, harassment, whether or not anything been seen or they had uh, experienced anything themselves that maybe they're not necessarily requiring individuals to bring any kind of grievances or something, but at least it gives people an indication of whether or not there are issues which they don't necessarily know about. Um, so yeah, look, there are many things that, that can be considered in terms of, uh, reasonable steps for employers. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, it's not one size fits all, I don't think either. Yeah. But what is clear, I think, is that employers should really be proactively, you know, looking to highlight that sexual harassment can take place. And it's not just the onus, as you say, on the employee coming forwards and raising that complaint. And it's more about recognizing potential patterns of behavior. Um, you know, have they gone on a long-term sick leave? Are they all of a sudden trying to avoid a certain colleague? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's really much more um, of a proactive effort on the employer's part that's required, which I think is important. So just touching on um, 
sort of where we think sexual harassment might go in the future uh, that you mentioned briefly before. So, and also right at the beginning, obviously you explained that the statutory definition is set out in the Equality Act, which was um, introduced back in 2010. And obviously we've come a long way since then. And uh, the whole um, hashtag Me Too wave, it's, you know, there's been a, there's definitely been a lot of sexual harassment claims that have been brought under the mechanism in the um, Equality Act. Um, but 13 years has now passed since that came into effect. So do you think that there's going to be any changes to um, mm-hmm. the sexual harassment provisions on the horizon? Or do you think they're, they're necessary, perhaps? Look, I, I think, I think um, in answer to the last question, yes, I, I do think it's probably necessary. And I do think it's also inevitable. Um, there's currently a private member's bill going through Parliament, which will introduce employers' liability for third-party harassment. Now, that may well seem familiar to many, and that's because there did used to be something uh, that existed uh, under Section 40 of the Equality Act, but that was repealed back in 2013. Under the previous rules, employers were uh, liable for third-party harassment where they um, failed to take reasonable steps to prevent it. And secondly, that they knew that the employee had been harassed in the course of their employment on at least two other occasions by a third party. The current bill... Uh, was also going to introduce uh, a duty on employers to take all reasonable steps to prevent sexual harassment of their employees. But crucially, uh, and this is the difference, there would not need to be two previous occasions by a third party for liability uh, on the employer to arise. Um, Furthermore, I think the the bill also would um, allow employment tribunals, it would give them the power to uplift sexual harassment compensation by up to 25%, where an employer is found to have breached the new duty to prevent sexual harassment. It does also provide that uh, employers will not be liable for the expression of certain opinions by others in the workplace. Um, Now, normally private members' bills don't get really enough time in in Parliament to pass into law, but... um, because the government was backing this bill, it was expected to pass, but recent uh, reports suggest that the um, the government is, is going to shelve this bill. That being, uh, I think, largely amid concerns, it will open up businesses to costly legal battles. That, that probably is inevitable. Um, although, as you might imagine, that this has come under huge amounts of criticism for certain sectors, uh, because it is said to demonstrate a failure to address a problem and the focus is on protecting business rather than individuals. So um, it, it's clearly um, a motive subject, it's a hot topic and um, there's there's still a, lot of work, a long way to go with it. What, what I think we can say with or without this legislation, um, and I suppose we're... we're uh, beginning to wrap up, but workers probably do deserve um, greater protection and workplaces will be better for it. Uh, it seems to me that if this is shelved, it may be uh, regarded as a missed opportunity to plug a gap in the harassment legislation. Uh, many workers in the industries where there are you know, clients and customers, they, they can be abusive, um, but there have been more than uh, 40 amendments tabled um, to this bill in recent weeks. And I suppose the the likelihood of this is it will 
um, time out the bill, given how little parliamentary time is allocated to private members' bills. But uh, it seems to me that many people agree that steps need to be taken to improve protection in the workplace um, for individuals, uh, but uh, few can really agree on how best to do that. Okay, so I think that's probably all we've got time for today. But thank you so much, Nick, for your time. It's been a really interesting and um, thorough discussion of sexual harassment. There's clearly some changes on the horizon and it's really important that we continue to discuss the topic. So thanks again for your time. Thank you. This is a Charles Russell Speechlease podcast.